morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Exodus, the way out. We're going to talk about wholeness this morning. Wholeness. What is wholeness? If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus chapter 29. We'll begin our reading at verse 43. It's where we left off last week. We'll work our way all the way to uh, chapter 31. And uh, also grab your sermon notes out. If I were to come to you and ask you, what is, why do you exist? Why are you here? Not here at Desert Breeze, though this would help you to answer that question. But uh, why are you here on this planet Earth? Why do you draw air into your lungs? Why do you exist? The answer is found right there, the first one on your notes. It's the first statement. I'm going to give you three statements and then one question, then I'll elaborate on all of this. Really important in understanding wholeness. And the first statement there is that we were created to enjoy the riches of God's glory. That's why you exist. In fact, when I discovered that a number of years ago, it was revolutionary. Is that it's God's glory. The, the more I pursue his glory, the more satisfied I will be because that's what I was created for. I was created to enjoy the riches of God's glory. I was created by God, for God, to give glory to God. And as I give glory to God, as I live for his glory, not my glory, his glory, nothing will satisfy me more. Nothing will satisfy you more. That's really the essence of, of the Bible, the Christian life. It's all about the glory of God. The problem is that next statement, man's rebellion against God is the cause of our brokenness. We live in a terribly broken world, and it's because of our rebellion and subsequent alienation from God. But how do we, how do we get back to that place of wholeness? Well, the next statement on your notes, beholding the glory of God, we become whole. It's in the beholding of his glory we become whole. In fact, that's really uh, what 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us. And in fact, it tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, that it says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. You have an adversary. He's doing everything he can to keep you from seeing and savoring the glory of God because that's why you exist is to be captivated by the beauty and the glory of who God is, to see his glory and to savor his glory. And as you do that, you will begin to show his glory through your life. And nothing will satisfy you more. Nothing, absolutely nothing will satisfy you more. That's why you exist. And uh, so here's the question. What are the marks of people who are becoming whole? What does wholeness look like? Another way of putting it, what, what's healthiness? Are you a healthy Christian? Are you a healthy person? Are you holy? That's another term for it, holiness. I've been around this for a long time, and it's always troubled me, and I've been a part of churches that were not very healthy, and obviously not very holy, but they thought they were holy, but they were extremely unhealthy, and it, it forced me to kind of think much deeper about this topic of, what, what, okay, so what is holiness? What is healthiness? What is wholeness? Because in beholding his glory, that's where we become whole. So, so what, is, what is brokenness? What does that mean to be broken? Well, let me elaborate a little bit on these, these statements here. And um, uh, you see, you were created uh, to walk in the garden in the cool of the day and to look into the face of your creator and to get from him all of the acceptance, security, and significance you would ever need. To have your heart filled up with his beauty and his glory. To have, a, have at the center of your being his glory and, and to know and have meaning and hope and happiness that comes from him, from knowing him. But because we sin, we turned away from that. This is all found in the third chapter, the third chapter of, uh, of Genesis. So we turned away from that. And so that spiritual alienation, boom, immediately left us uh, psychologically alienated. So spiritual alienation leaves us psychologically alienated, empty and desperate to fill the void inside of us. In fact, 
The Bible uses the word conceit or pride. The word conceit means vain glory, as the old King James Version puts it. So we are empty of glory, and therefore we are desperate, desperate to get, get that glory, that sense of meaning, hope, and happiness, that sense of acceptance, security, and significance. And so because we've turned away from the source of all of that, we try to find it in created things more than the creator. That's brokenness. So brokenness we could define as brokenness as, as self, self-absorption. Self-absorption comes because we're empty and we're desperately looking through our job, through relationships, through our looks to try to fill that sense of meaning and hope that my life matters. And we see that all around us in our world today. And that's brokenness. Self-absorption, pride, glory, hunger desperate to to feel that my life matters, that I matter. And so if we don't get it from the creator where we should get it, we're going to try to get it from creation. And it creates all of the brokenness, not only within our own life, but in our relationships and everything everything around us. So if the essence of sin is self-absorption, one of, way, one of the ways to define it, pride, glory, hunger, then the essence of salvation is a blessed self-forgetfulness. Blessed self-forgetfulness. It's not that we, that we think less of ourselves, but we think of ourselves less because we are captivated by the riches of God's glory. You don't need to worry about yourself when he's got all the bases covered for you. He's going to take care of you. He loves you. So you can see why the beholding of his glory, you become you become whole. Remember Adam and Eve before the, before the event that happened in the garden when they rebelled against God. It says there in the very last verse of chapter 2 of Genesis that they were naked and unafraid. I mean, they were totally vulnerable. Why? Because they had the glory of God. And then sin took place. They rebelled against God. They became empty inside. Their lives became broken, and they were naked, and they were ashamed, and immediately they began to put on the fig leaves, which we all do. We tend to do that. We tend to wear all kinds of masks and, and, and try to do things to try to make ourselves feel better about ourselves rather than to return to God and to find that sense of identity and security. And by the way, nothing makes you more miserable and less attractive than self-centeredness, and that's really the essence of of when we rebel against God and turn away from God. Beholding, this idea of beholding is not so much that you get a hold on something, but something gets a hold on you, that he gets a hold on you. He captivates you. So how do you know? Because by nature, we are all beholders. You're, you're, you're beholding something. Even this morning, you're beholding. When you woke up, you were beholding something. Beholding is about worship. So how do you know what you're beholding? How do you know what's at the center of your life, at the core of, your, of what you trust and treasure the most in your life? How do you know? This, this is how you know, is that what is it that predominantly you daydream about in your solitude or in spare time? That will reveal where you are getting your sense of meaning, hope, and happiness. Where does your mind go when your mind is free to go any place. Where does it go? What do you talk about? What do you think about? What dominates your thoughts? What stirs your deepest emotion? What moves you to action? Why do you do what you do? If you get to the heart of that, you're going to find where your sense of, you could say that God is at the center of your life. You could say that you're beholding God when in reality something else, something else has a hold of your deepest loyalties and affections. And this has all sorts of implications to our lives. Let me give you some illustrations here, okay, just so that you know how profound this is to our lives. For instance, if, if getting married is the object of, of my beholding, my beholding, then I will be too desperate to get married and be perpetually discontented and possibly lower my standards and find myself in a relationship that is terribly disappointing and maybe even abusive. I've, I've seen that. I've seen that over and over again. If my marriage is the object of my beholding, then I will crush my spouse under the weight of my unrealistic expectations, and I will inevitably be chronically angry at my spouse's shortcomings. If the happiness of my children or how they turn out is the object of my beholding, then I will tend to either be too permissive 
or too controlling and my children will become either insecure in dealing with life or they're going to become rebellious. If people approval is the object of my beholding, then I won't be able to handle criticism. I'll be too easily hurt. I'll be afraid to confront and inevitably settle for superficial relationships. I mean, you can see the implications of all this. It really comes down to what am I beholding? Where, where do I get my sense of meaning and hope and happiness fundamentally in my life? If a particular political party is the object of my beholding, I, hear, I see this a lot, by the way, by a lot of well-meaning Christians, but if a particular political party is the object of my beholding, then I will tend to demonize and deify political causes and or people causing greater bitterness between parties, filling me with excessive anxiety about the future of our country. If money is the object of my beholding, then I will tend to be terribly stingy with money, driven to either save too much because money is my security or spend too much because money is my significance. So how do you change your behavior? How do you change your behavior? You change your behavior by changing what you are beholding. You change what you are worshiping. Your worshiping determines what, how you're gonna live out your life. And so the Christian life is not a call to behave. If you grew up in a church where they said, you need to behave differently. That's not the call of the Christian life. The call of the Christian life is not to behave, but a call to behold. To behold, which will inevitably transform how you behave. Now, that's just my introduction, okay? You guys ready? (laughs) So, we we haven't even gotten to the text yet, okay? That's That's just the primer. You guys primed? You guys ready to dive deep into this? We need to pray. And then what we're going to do a little bit differently here this morning, I'm just going to read a little bit of the text. You can see how it's laid out. Instead of reading the whole text, I'm going to read the text. I'll give you a fill in the blank. We'll talk about it. And we'll read the text, give you the fill in the blank, talk about it. We'll just kind of work through that. And we're really answering the question, what do people look like who behold, who are beholding God and becoming whole? What does that look like in a person's life? So let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we are delighted to to be here this morning. We love your presence. God, we know that people are starving for your glory, but most would not give this diagnosis of their broken and troubled lives. We were created to enjoy the riches of your glory, and our rebellion against you is the cause of our brokenness. It's It's only when we behold your glory that we become whole. Teach us. Teach us how to behold, to see, and to savor your glory so that our worry will be turned to worship, our weakness turned into strength, our fear into faith, our bitterness into blessing, our despair into hope, our discontentment into satisfaction in you. We pray these things in your son's glorious name. And everyone said... Amen. So take a look at Exodus chapter 29, verses 43 through 46. Let me bring you up to speed if you haven't been with us through our study through the book of Exodus. And so Exodus chapters 1 through 18, God rescues the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. As he does for all of us, the book of Exodus is about redemption. And so God rescues us from those things that we love more than him because those things we love more than him will enslave us and inevitably disappoint us and devastate us. And so that's the first half of the book. He sets us free. Let my people go, the second half of the book, so that they can, so that they may worship me, so that they may serve me, intimacy with God. And that's Exodus 19 through 40. In in route to the promised land, the Israelites come to Mount Sinai where God invites them into a covenant relationship using tabernacle, his dwelling place. He's going to dwell in tabernacle using priests and sacrifices. We studied that over the last two weeks, Exodus 24 through 29, all of which points to Christ as the ultimate temple, priest, and sacrifice for us. We have access to God. Why did he talk about all of that? For this particular reason, Look at verse 43. This is where we ended our study last week. There I will meet with the people of Israel so that we can meet with God, so that he can meet with us. 
and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will uh, consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priest. I will, he's not just going to meet with us, but he's going to, I will dwell. Tabernacle is, is that idea, that word, among the people of Israel and will be their God and they shall know. So he's not just going to meet with us, but he's going to dwell among us so that we may know. The word know here is more than just an intellectual uh, where it, you know God intellectually, you know some attributes about God, but it's existential, it's moving, it's stirring, it, it's experiential. That they may experience me, that they may encounter me. So the knowing is something that transforms our lives. Intimacy with God. So he will meet with his people, he will dwell among them so that they may know that I am the Lord, the word there, Yahweh, their God, who brought them, who has rescued them, who has redeemed them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. So that when people look at our lives, we're, we put on the glory of God. That's the idea here. I am the Lord, their God. Now, I said this last week, the higher and the more accurate our view of God the stronger and the more secure and satisfied you'll be in life. Oftentimes, it's our small view of God that gets us into trouble. So that's why we need a really, really robust, rich, big view of God. So if I'm overcome by the trauma and the trials and the, and the temptations of life, it's because I need a bigger view of God. God, I need to know, I need to know you. I need to experience you. In fact, this is what I've also found is that people who are closest to God are most fired up about God. I can tell when people are really getting close to God. Oh, my goodness. There's an excitement. There's a passion deep in their heart. Oh, my goodness. Because when you get glimpses of his glory, you want more. You want more. Oh, God, I want to see you more. and I want to experience you more. So that's the purpose. Tabernacle, priest, and sacrifices, all for their ability to be able to encounter God. So what does that mean to behold him and to become whole? Uh, so this section of Exodus would be uh, the New Testament equivalent of spiritual disciplines. How many know what spiritual disciplines are? Show of hands, show of hands, spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines, okay. Not near enough of you know what spiritual disciplines are. And so you need to go back a couple years and go through our whole teaching series on spiritual disciplines. It was called Thrive. So we talked about that. But you guys, you guys know what spiritual disciplines are, aren't, don't you? I mean, you should. This is a spiritual discipline, being here, okay, and, and reading your Bible and praying and, and all of those things. So, so di spiritual disciplines are those things that you do to increase your capacity to experience more of God, to know the living God, to get a glimpse of his glory, to be captivated by God. Why do you pray? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you come to church? Because you want to know him. You want to know God. You want to behold his glory because in the beholding of his glory, you're becoming a whole it's no longer selfish and self-centered and desperately trying to fill the void inside. No, it's you're satisfied. There's a contentment. There's a courage. There's a, there's a compassion that overflows your life as a result of that. And uh, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And so I say here the marks, of, the marks of people, plural, because wholeness is a team sport. It happens best in community. And by the way, you need to know this too, is that relationships are only as healthy as the individuals that make up those relationships. So if you don't like the way your marriage is going or your family is going, just take a good look at yourself, okay? Start with yourself because those relationships that you're involved in are only as healthy as the individuals that make up those relationships. So start working on yourself because... Uh, so if relationships are only as healthy as the individuals that make up those relationships, therefore individual wholeness is the key to healthy relationships. Individual wholeness happens best in relationship and in healthy relationships. And, and it may start with you, within the people that you're interacting with. There might be a few people you need to kind of exit from and say, I'm not going to hang out with you anymore because of the unhealthiness. And that's appropriate. There's appropriate times to have good, healthy boundaries, but for the most part, you want to have good, healthy relationships. You want to be a part of that, and that's what happens here, and this is why it's, he's talking about this in the sense of community. Now, let me uh, begin reading here. 
in, uh, I've already read, but the second part that we're going to read is chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. I'm only going to read parts of this. You can go through all of this in more detail on your own as you work through the growing notes and in your small group this next week, if that's what you guys are, are working through. But let me just read verse 1 and then 7 and 10. And the first part of this is the altar of incense. Notice in verse 1, chapter 30, you shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. Now, now keep in mind, this is Moses. He's up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and he's talking and he's face-to-face. He's interacting with God, and God is giving him all these instructions for the tabernacle, the priests, the sacrifices, and now he's giving him further instruction. But guess what the people are up to right now, currently? All of his people are building a golden calf, idolatry. Nothing can keep you from the glory of God and the satisfaction that that brings except idolatry. So we're going to talk about that next week. And that's where they are, and they're going to miss out on the glory of God. And that's where when you get from some chapter 32 is that they're building the golden calf, chapter 33. It's Moses saying, show me your glory. I'm desperate. And so we'll, we'll be talking more about that, but that's where they are currently. And so God tells him to build this altar of incense. Jump down to verse 7. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it every morning when he dresses the lamps. He shall burn it. Notice this. Every morning. This is, that's significant. Every morning. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. So twilight means before the sun comes up, after the sun has set. So it's kind of like at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day, and and really it's something that's going to be burning really throughout the day. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generation. So this isn't something you're just going to do seasonally. This is going to be something you pass on throughout all the generations. You shall not authorize unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement. Anytime you read the word atonement, just think at one meant, at one meant. So God, through his love for us, has sacrificed his son for us so that we could be at one with God. This is all a picture of that. So it's pointing to Jesus. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin. That's all pointing to Jesus. The sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement. That word's used a number of times there. You can see atonement for once in the year throughout your generations, it is most holy to the Lord. So what is he talking about here? What is is true about people? What are the marks of people who are beholding God and becoming whole? Here's the first one. They are a praying people. They are a praying people. Now, where'd you get that, Pastor Ray? Well, because incense throughout Scripture is, uh, is a, an analogy of prayer. And in fact, Psalm 141.2, it says, let my prayer be counted as incense before you. Luke 1.10, Revelations 5.8, also uses prayer as, uh, or, or incense as an analogy of prayer. So I've got to ask you a real serious question here. How's your prayer life? If you're wanting to become whole, then you need to start beholding. And if you're going to behold God, we've got to take a look at your prayer life. How are you doing? with your prayer. Would your prayer life be classified more as a business associate kind of relationship where it's more about petition, just kind of bringing your list, your list to God? Here, God, I need you to do this, do this, do this, do this. When you get it all done, come back and talk to me. Or I'll come back and talk to you to check to see how well you're doing. The conversations are goal-oriented with no, no, not much chit-chat, just get it done, God. How about this? Or is it more, more uh, and not that there's anything wrong with bringing your petitions to God, but it's got to be more than that. But maybe it, it, yours is the next level. It's more friendship. It's more about confession. You open your heart about some of your problems. That's a good thing. That's really a good thing. But what's going to really satisfy you more than anything? It's got to move beyond business associate, friendship. It's got to be a love relationship. It's got to be adoration. Yes, you will, have, um, you will have petition and you will have confession, but oh my goodness, you're going to love the adoration. You love spending time with him. And in fact, there are times that you are just lost in, in love and wonder 
and praise to your creator. And the time just, whoa, flies by because you love spending time with him. See, that's, that's healthy Christianity. That's what he's talking about. This, this incense, this prayer time with, with God. Think about this just for a minute. What if I were to come to my wife and say, um, I better be careful here. Uh, um, I will, I'll spend time with you and love you if you'll make my favorite meal for me. How do you think that would fly? Think that would go well? Think that she would just, oh, that's so sweet of you. Yes, I'll, I'll make your meal for you and I'll dump it on your head. That, that's probably how she would have responded. She would have made the meal and then dumped it on my head, scalding hot, okay, on my bald head. But uh, she would have said, she would, I mean, she's, like, she's not going to buy that. I'm not going to buy that, but I, I've got to, I wouldn't do that, and maybe I probably did that in the early years, but I, don't, I, I certainly wouldn't do it now after 40 years because she's trained me, because uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. That's, that's a bad joke, uh, but she would say she has, so, uh, so I'm going with that one, but, but actually, uh, I love spending time with her. She's my drinking buddy. <laughs> coffee drinking, okay, coffee drinking. Coffee drinking buddy. We, we hang out. We, we've, we've probably hit every coffee house in the valley. There's some really cool uh, hipster kind of places downtown here. I don't know why none of them come up here where we are because we're cool. Okay. Maybe we're not that cool. But, uh, but we'll go downtown. There's some good town, town places. And there's places up here too, you know, not very many. But, uh, but then when we go and travel out of town, look us up. We'll be at the local coffee shop hanging out, reading, talking sharing our lives with each other. There's just a lot of things I enjoy doing with her. Even more so should that be true about your relationship with God. You know one of the reasons that keeps us uh, from really interacting with God and having that, that relationship with Him is, um, is because um, we, in, if prayer is boring to you, it's because you don't actually believe, you don't believe He hears you. <laughs> You don't believe that he hears you and has deep affection for you and wants to do great things in and through your life. It's, it's about unbelief. You don't actually believe that because believe me, if you believe that, if you believe that he actually hears you and he has deep affection for you and wants to do great things in and through your life, oh my goodness, nothing would keep you from intimacy with him. Intimacy with him is life's most satisfying reality. His glory, your joy, in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures evermore. Psalm 1611. The deeper the love, the more the conversation heads towards the personal and toward affirmation and praise. The more it just heads in that direction. You just, oh my goodness, you just love going, God, oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm your child. You lavished me with your love. You have sent your son to rescue me. And not only am I reconciled to you and that I know you, but you've adopted me and, and you've empowered me with your Holy Spirit. Oh, God, I thank you for that. I celebrate all that you've done. I just I kind of go through just a lot of the things that are true about me and my relationship with him, and it, and it can be life-changing. As I enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, it's just, it's... It's, it's absolutely amazing. See, if you, if you only knew, listen to me, if you only knew what he thinks about you, the God of the galaxies, he thinks thoughts about you, he's thinking about you right now. If you knew what he thinks about you, if you knew how he felt about you, if you realized what he wants to do in and through your life, nothing would keep you from spending time with him. Nothing would keep you from practicing his presence and enjoying his love through prayer. So that's a person, I mean, you could see, that's a person that's really beholding the glory of God and there's a wholeness coming to their life. 
because they've never been more satisfied as they, as they get close to him, as they get to know him. Now, okay, okay, that, for some of us, I mean, we're thinking, oh my goodness, I don't, I don't pray like that. I need to pray like that. No, 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 this isn't about guilt. And this isn't one of these messages, and maybe you've heard it before. Come on, you guys are a bunch of pagans out there. Why aren't you praying more? What's wrong with you? Well, we don't do that here because that's not really what motivates us. It really comes down to unbelief. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to exhort you, I'm going to encourage you to, to, to look at your beliefs See, when the Holy Spirit convicts us, he doesn't convict us to shame us. He convicts us to, to woo us, to draw us to, to deeper levels of intimacy and freedom. And when you begin to believe that and understand that, you're going, oh, man, I'm really missing out. Yes, if you're not spending time, with, if you're spending more time in front of the tube, the TV, or the computer screen, you're missing out. You're missing out. Sorry, I didn't mean to yell. Yeah, you're missing out on what can satisfy you. It's absolutely amazing. And so it tells us in, uh, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. That's Psalm 145, 18. So what is truth? Truth is, is Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So John 14, 6. So you gotta go through Jesus. He's the one that paves the way. Remember the sacrifice that they made for, for all this, this incense? There's a sacrifice that's pointing to Jesus, so we can only go, we can only have access to, to God through Jesus. But it also means this, is that you just can't make up God in your own mind. Well, I, I believe that God's more like this. You, you hear people say that all the time. Well, I don't, I don't believe in a God like that. I believe in a God like this. It's like, well, who are you? You're not the one that defines God. God defines God. And he's defined God for us in the Bible. So you go back to the Bible, and that's how you, you interact with him based on what the Bible teaches it's based on what he said. He said he's established who he is. And so it's truth through Jesus. It's truth based on his word. But it's also truth just pouring your heart out to him. When was the last time you poured your heart out to him? I do it every day. Oh, my goodness, because I'm desperate. And you are too. You are too. You're just out of touch with the reality of that. You're desperate too. I pour my heart out to him every t before I even get up here. I can't do this. I tell him that. I can't do this. I don't even know what the heck I'm doing half the time. I need you, God. I'm desperate for you. Speak to me and speak to, speak to the people here. I can't do it. I can't pull anything off. God, but they need you. They, they need to see you. They need an experience of you. That's what you need. That's what I need. Okay. That was our first point. We got more to go, Okay. So hang in there. So here we go, verses 11 through 16. Here we go. He's going to talk about the census tax. Let me read verses 11 and 12 and 16. The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them that there be no plague among them when you number them. Now you're thinking, wait a minute, what's this about? It sounds like they're buying God there. You know, they're giving money and they're paying uh, this, this census uh, to, because God redeemed them, but that's not why they're doing it. He goes into more detail, but look at verse 16. He explains it to us. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of me meeting. So kind of why we have an offering there in boxes. We've never taken an offering in 27 years where we pass the plate, and yet because of the faithfulness and the generosity of people like yourself, uh, you, you give faithfully so that we can turn the lights on, we got air conditioning, we're meeting the needs of our kids, and then beyond this, we're able to reach people's lives in this community, which is pretty phenomenal what we, what we see happening through your generosity. That's what he's talking about here. And so he says, so for the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord. So this is meant to remind us, so God, you paid an incalculable price for my redemption, but this is just a token. I'm just responding by giving of my time, my talent, my treasure, my finances back to you. Notice it says, in remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. They were not redeemed by, by paying money, nor are we, but paying the annual tax reminded them of what God has done for them. So marks of people who are beholding God and becoming whole are a praying people, but this next one is a grateful people. So out of gratitude, 
out of gratitude, we give of our time and our talents and our treasure to our local church so that people's needs are met and we can reach the community. Now, two of the Two of the chapters that speak of this the best in the New Testament, this understanding of gratitude and generosity, are found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and then chapter 9. In fact, I happen to believe those two chapters define grace spectacularly, amazingly. If you really want to have an understanding of grace, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9 gives us the definition of grace. For you know the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. Do you have any idea, Christian, how wealthy you are in Jesus Christ because of his poverty? That's what it's saying. I mean, it it should just overwhelm you when you understand and think through the implications of, of the richness that you have in Christ Jesus. Now, as you move into chapter 9, this is what he says, verses 6 through 8. He says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So it's out of that grace, then there's that generosity. And then he says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. So if you're ever in a setting where they're trying to force you to give, and you feel like, I've got to do this reluctantly because he dogged me for 20 minutes trying to take this offering. He says, don't do it reluctantly or under compulsion because somebody's forcing you. But he says, for God loves a what kind of giver? Cheerful, literally hilarious. That's what that word means. It's almost like when you are stunned by the grace of God, you will, whoa, another opportunity to give to God, to show him my gratitude for all that he's done for me. I believe that's why we haven't passed a plate for 27 years here. And God, I have people that show up here all the time that are family members and friends that come in from out of state, and they'll look at the generosity of you guys, and they're blown away. They go, oh, my goodness. How do you guys do that? And I'm like, "I, I don't even know how we do that. Okay, it's grace, and I think that these folks have encountered Christ and understand his grace, and out of the overflow of that, they're generous. I think that's what's happening. See, people who are generously loved by God are grateful people who love generously. In fact, I didn't even read that last verse, which actually really defines grace that much more. It's, it's so, so if you're going to define grace, the best definition for grace is 2 Corinthians 8, 9, and 9, 8. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, 9, 8. 9, 8 puts it like this. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in Every good work. The word abound, he uses it a couple times in that verse, and that abound means like a river overflowing its banks. That's your life when you understand God's grace. Grateful people are generous people with their time, talent, and treasure. An abiding attitude of gratitude is one of the marks of a person who realizes how little they deserve and how much they have received by God's grace. Ungrateful people are proud and feel entitled. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. I'll just read a couple excerpts from, it's it's somewhat of a lengthy uh, quote, but I'll just, I'll pick and choose some of the things that he says here. It's from his book, Reflections on the Psalms. This is what he says. I have never noticed, I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. So all enjoyment spontaneously overflows in praise. Just, okay, let me, let me illustrate that just for a minute, okay. So, so I, I was at the coffee bar last night, and um, they have those donuts that we get like every couple weeks. You, did you see all the donuts that were in there? Some of you need to wipe your face because I can see the donuts on your face. Okay, I'm going to wipe that off. But uh, so I got, I got the, uh, a big chocolate long john slathered, lavished with chocolate, and then I bit into it, and it was filled with chocolate cream. <gasps> and so I, I, I ate it, and, I, and my wife came over, and I said, oh, this is really good. She goes, really? I go, yeah, really. And, and so what was that all about? About chocolate? Actually, it's about... This is what he says. He says, I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows in praise. When you're enjoying something, you're going to give praise. You're going to celebrate that. You're going to enjoy it and share it with others. In fact, he goes on, he says, the humblest 
and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds, capacious means generous minds, praised most while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. So keep in mind, we're talking about wholeness here. We're talking about healthiness, holiness. And he's just saying, people that don't praise, people that are cranks, misfits, malcontents, praise least. But people are experiencing more of who God is and what he's done for them. They're going to have much more praise in their life. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist in telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. That's why I listen to Proverbs and Psalms the first thing in the morning because I'm telling you, when I listen to the Psalms celebrating the greatness and the glory and the beauty of God, it lifts my spirit. My heart is lifted. And I'm, they're like, wow, this is so good. Come on and join us. That's what they're saying in the, in the Psalms as you're working through the Psalms. We'll never get through this quote if I keep doing that, though. Huh? <laughs> I keep I, I get these thoughts. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is appointed, it is, it is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. So here's, here's what I'm saying. And, and I, let me summarize it here. Gratitude is inner health made audible through praise. How healthy are you? Let me ask you this question. Are you a predominantly grateful or ungrateful person? In fact, better yet, why don't you ask somebody that lives with you? Oh, boy. I don't dare do that. Why not? Because, that, because see, we, we're so... We're so delusional when it comes to our own lives, thinking that we're more than what we really are. We desperately need to have feedback from others. I didn't even ask my wife that because I already know. I'm the most grateful person in the world. Actually, I know I'm not. She's so much more grateful than I am. That's what really attracted me to her. It was that she's just unbelievably grateful. And it's just... It, it makes me, it embarrasses me at times because I'm like, not embarrasses me in the sense that she's being grateful, like for me. Like, why am I so ungrateful? Why am I such a complainer? It kind of exposes my own sinfulness in that. Are you a predominantly grateful or ungrateful person? I, I'm not trying to get on you. I, I just want you to know that if the Holy Spirit's convicting you with this, you're missing out. You're not beholding. That's all, that's all it is. If you would behold his glory, I'm telling you, you're going to be more grateful. That's all it is. Okay, let's continue on, verses 17 through 21. i got to get rolling here. The bronze basin. Uh, so the Lord said to Moses, you shall also make a, a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord. They shall wash with water so that they may not, what's that word? Die. Die. It sounds like last weekend when we were talking about the holiness of God. And look at verse 21. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not, what's the word? Die. Die. And it shall be a statute. In other words, statue, statue is something that's permanent. So it shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generation. So marks of people who are beholding God and becoming whole are a praying people, a grateful people, a cleansed people, a cleansed people. Now, Exodus 38.8 gives us more insight into this whole idea of this uh, basin, this bronze basin, and it says in uh, Exodus 38.8, further into Exodus, he made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors. So they had mirrors in those days, not like our mirrors. They had mirrors that was basically polished brass. So you could certainly make out 
you know, some things of your face. It's kind of the, the bigger picture, not a lot of the specific details, not real small details, but it's more kind of the outline uh, of, of you. And I was thinking I want to go back to those mirrors because I think that would be much better for me in the, early in the morning when I look at myself. In our mirrors, our mirrors are too detailed, and, and, but, but that's what they had. It was polished brass. And the Bible over and over again tells us, in fact, in James 1, 23 through 25, God's word is like a mirror that we are to look at intently and respond to. Some of you are seeing yourself in the mirror of what we're studying this morning as you're thinking about prayer, you're thinking about gratitude, you're saying, well, I'm not quite where I should be in that. Exactly, maybe you're not, and that's okay, but now you need to respond and allow God to meet you right where you are so that he can bring about the wholeness as you learn how to behold him. It tells us in John 15, 3, it talks about the, the cleansing ability of God's word. Matthew 6, 12, so how do we how do we cleanse our lives? How do we make those course corrections? Well, Jesus taught us that in the Lord's Prayer, in that section where he says, and forgive us of our trespasses or of our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us or trespassed against us. You guys are familiar with the story of the mom who was teaching her daughter that Lord's Prayer to memorize it, and, and the mom overheard the daughter uh, praying the prayer, and when she got to that point of forgive us of our trespasses instead of her saying that she said and forgive us of our trash baskets as we forgive those who put trash in our baskets <laughs> and that's brilliant I love that because that's exactly right we got trash in our baskets so God help me dump the trash because it's gotten too high and it's stinking right now what happens when you don't take out the trash especially if you put a lot of food in there it's horrible what's interesting about that is that uh, that over time, if you don't take it out, over time your nose gets used to it and you don't smell it anymore until somebody walks in the house and they go, what is that horrible smell? <laughs> and you go, well, I don't smell anything. Exactly, because you're living here. You need to take the trash out. And so we need to take trash out in our own lives, but, but when people put trash in our trash baskets, we need to dump that. We need to learn how to deal with it. We need to allow God to bring the healing. How do we do that? Well, we've got to get over our denial about our sins and agree with God. 1 John 1, 8 through 9. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If there's anybody here that thinks, well, I don't even know what this guy's talking about and I've got it pretty much together and so, woo, yeah, guess what? You're in denial. Because the more you look into the word of God as a mirror, you're going to be exposed and you're going to see, wow, I, I do fall short, yeah. Yeah, you do, and it should make you more desperate for Jesus and appreciate his grace that much more. So we've got to get over our denial and agree with God. So if we confess, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are so instinctively and profoundly self-centered that we don't think we are. And in fact, self-centered people are usually the last ones to see their self-centeredness. That's why we need people to, to, to speak truth to us and ask people, how am I doing in this? Be honest with me. To know the true condition of your heart, don't look at your sins, but look at what you boast in. We talked about that last week because your sins are symptomatic of what it is that you are beholding and boasting in. So look at your solitude. Where does your mind go? What are you celebrating deep in your heart? Now, a couple weeks ago, we did a study. It was called Live Your Faith. It was over Exodus 21 through 23. So here's what I want to challenge you. I'm going to kind of help you through this process of taking out the trash. Let me help you take out some trash this morning. And, um, and what people, things, and circumstances are your biggest struggles right now? What are you up against? What are you struggling with? What are the people, things, and circumstances that you're struggling with the most right now? Just give it some thought. Just think about this. I'm going to help you. How do you, how do you deal with that? How do you work through that? Maybe it's a relationship, or maybe it's your health, or maybe it's finances, or maybe it's your job, or maybe it's just it's trauma in life. You've, you have a loss. You've just taken a hit. What's going on in your life? Here's what you need to keep in mind. It's not, it's not the events of life that make you feel and behave the way you're feeling and behaving towards the people, things, and circumstances of your life. It's your evaluation of those events 
that determine how you think and feel about what's going on in your life. So here's what you need to add to your evaluation. This is what you should do regularly and every day. As you're facing obstacles and you're thinking, well, I'm not really responding to this very well. Because right now, this person that irritates me, I'd like to go over and choke them out. In fact, my hands would fit really well around their neck. Yeah, that's about the right size. So, so when you start feeling like that, so what do you do? You, uh, what do you do? You don't, you, you, you back away and you say, wait a minute, who's God? Here's the questions you need to ask yourself as you're kind of working through the extreme anxiety or anger or the depression in your life. Who is God? Well, he's the creator. What has he done? Wow, he's, he's rescued me. He's redeemed me. He sent his son to rescue me. Okay, so who are you in light of what he's done? I'm his child lavished with his love. Okay, okay. So how would a child lavished with his love respond to your current people, things, and circumstances, the things that you're up against, things that you're struggling with right now? What would that look like in, in your life? How should I live in light of, of God's work? Does that, does that make sense? Faith is, is thinking out the implications of, of what you have in Christ and then beginning to apply them specifically to where your heart is most restless. What you're struggling with. What are you struggling with? I'm telling you, Jesus can meet you right there, right where you're at. But you've got to begin to sit down and think and reflect and behold. That's the, I'm teaching you how to behold. Behold, behold. You don't have to be as anxious as you are anxious. You don't need to or be as, as depressed as you are depressed. God can meet you there. I must confront myself at the moment I need to be different with the truth about who God is, what he's done, who I am in light of God's work, and how I should live in light of God's work, and ask for his supernatural help. That'll take us to this next, next point. But you shouldn't feel and do what you feel and do if you knew. You wouldn't feel and do what you feel and do if you knew what Jesus had done for you. That's the bottom line. See... By the way, as we work through this, the, the, more, the more you see the awfulness of your sins, the more amazing will be his grace. So we need a lot of help on this next one. This next one, uh, verses 22 through 38, we need his Holy Spirit to help us with all of these. And that's what this anointing oil and incense is. Verse 22, the Lord said to Moses, jump to, he goes into some details about the spices and how to put that together. Look at verse 25. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil blended as by, by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. So what is he talking about here? Okay, marks of people who are beholding and becoming whole, a praying people, grateful people, a cleansed people, a spirit-filled people. He's talking about the Holy Spirit here. First John 2.20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have knowledge. When he says anointing in the New Testament, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. This idea of the anointing is the Holy Spirit. Verse 27 of 1 John 2, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you. So what is this spirit-filled life? That could be a bit controversial, especially from the background that I come from. What does it mean to be spirit-filled? Well, I believe that... Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21 help us with that. It likens the spirit-filled life with being drunk. So it says, don't be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So the spirit-filled life is like and unlike being drunk. I've talked about this in the past. Let me help you to walk through this. It, it is like being drunk in that it makes you happy and courageous. Being drunk and being filled with the Spirit makes you happy and courageous. Now, I realize that there are some really horrible drunks out there, okay, people that can be really mean, but they're more courageous because they can express their meanness in a very unhealthy way. But, it, but they are like one another because they make you happy and courageous. But they're unlike one another because being drunk decreases your reality. Being drunk decreases reality, where being spirit-filled increases the reality of the person and work of Christ Jesus. I mean, listen to me. Isn't that what Jesus said to his disciples when he was getting ready to exit? He says, I'm leaving you, but I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to send you another comforter. Just as I was with you, the Holy Spirit will be with you. And oh, by the way, he's going to reveal all the things I've been speaking to you. In fact, he's going to glorify me to you. He's going to make much of me. 
I'm going to become more real to you than ever before. That's the point. That's what the Holy Spirit does. You can tell when the Holy Spirit is working because Christ is more real than your trauma and your trials and your temptation, and you want him more than anything. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so when the truth of Christ is not just clear to the mind but real to the heart, is when the fruit of the Holy Spirit will be produced in your life in good times and bad times. You're going to see more of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, regardless of your circumstances. See, true love for God and others, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, won't grow if we are insecure about His love for us. And so the Holy Spirit makes His love real to your heart. Let's talk about mental health here just for a moment because this goes along with this whole idea of wholeness. Mental health, let me define mental health for you. Mental health is being in touch with reality. Mental health is being in touch with reality and relatively free from anxiety because you are realizing more and more that God is for you and not against you. That's mental health. You're in touch with reality. You take some hits in life. They're very hurtful, but you're not overwhelmed by them because you know that God is working in the midst of those hard things that you're going through. He's more real. He's comforting. He loves you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Nothing can separate you from his love, and the Holy Spirit's making that alive to your heart unlike ever before. It's supernatural, very supernatural, especially when you're going through hard times. See, anxiety is the emotional distress caused when something vital to your life is threatened. Anxiety, boom, when something really important to you is threatened, beholding God's glory will make everything else less vital and your life less fragile. That's why we need to behold his glory so that Christ becomes more real. Okay, we've run out of time. Let me just give you the last uh, Exodus 31, the whole chapter right here. And so he talks about here how God has gifted us to work hard. That's the first few verses. The Lord said to Moses, see, I have called, and he, he lists these, these different people uh, about the giftings that they have so that they can work hard. The second part of verse 7, he says, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. So God has given us giftings, ability to work, but we need to balance our work with Sabbath. That's the last part of the chapter. And the Lord said to Moses, this is verse 12 of this chapter, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say above all, you shall keep my Sabbath for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord that I am the Lord, sanctify you. So here it is. So marks of people who are beholding God and becoming whole, praying people, grateful people, cleansed people, spirit-filled people, balanced people, work and rest. We live in a culture today where we tend to worship our work, work at our play, and play at our worship, and we need to really have some balance to our life. We need better boundaries. I'm learning that. My wife and I are going on a sabbatical here this summer, and one of the things that I've learned, I need to do a better job with my boundaries so that I have more margin to my life. I typically only take one day off a week. And so I said, when we get back, I'm going to start taking two, okay? It'll be Thursday and Friday. Typically, I only take Friday off. Friday is my Sabbath, and typically, I fill that up with something that I need to do around the house or something along those lines, but I'm going to start doing that. I'm going to start taking more time off during the summer because I don't take enough time. Typically, I only take two weekends off every summer, and so I'm going to probably take more time there, but I'm learning uh, to have better boundaries. Boundaries define what I'm responsible for and what I'm not responsible for. Margin is the space between my load and my limit. And so if you have no margin in your life, it's because you don't have good boundaries and you don't have good boundaries because you are beholding something other than God that is driving your life. So boundaries is just learning what you're responsible for, what you're not responsible for. And then if you have good, healthy boundaries, then you're going to have more margin in your life and, and be able to certainly have that time of Sabbath. Sabbath is meant really... There's an interesting story found in Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. Jesus heals a man's shriveled hand on the Sabbath, and the religious establishment blows a head gasket. And, and Jesus says, hey, the Sabbath is about restoring the diminished. It's about replenishing the drained. It's about repairing the broken. To heal the man's shriveled hand is to do exactly what the Sabbath is about. And then Jesus finishes up by saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. So, so let me end our message here this morning. This is what Jesus is speaking to us through all of this. Come unto me.
Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. He will give you rest. You will find rest in him. See, you were made for him, and your heart will forever be restless until you find your rest in him. It's in the beholding. It's in the beholding of his glory that we become whole. We're going to talk more about that next week when we talk about his glory. Let's pray. I would encourage you to read chapters 33 through 34. It's just the really profound chapters. So that's what we'll talk about next week. Father God, when, when we by grace through faith take refuge in Jesus' saving work in our behalf, we are reconciled to you, centering our lives on you. You are profoundly honored and glorified in the act of our being profoundly satisfied and completed in you. Help us to see and savor your glory more and more fully every day. And give it expression through our lives by being a praying people, a grateful people, a cleansed people, a Holy Spirit-filled people, and a balanced people. All for your glory and our joy in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, Amen. amen. Love you guys. God bless you.